0: Welcome back. My name is Jen Toslieb.
1: And I'm Jose Sanchez.
0: And we are the co-hosts of the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic.
1: In this episode, we speak with Professor James Densley about his work on gangs and mass violence.
0: James Densley is a professor and department chair of criminal justice at Metropolitan State University, part of the Minnesota state system. He is also the co-founder of the Violence Project Research Center, best known for its database of mass shooters. Densley has received global media attention for his work on street gangs, criminal networks, violence, and policing. He is the author of six books, including the award-winning How Gangs Work, 45 peer-reviewed articles in leading scientific journals, and 70 book chapters, essays, and other works in outlets such as CNN, LA Times, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. Thank you for joining us, James.
2: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on
1: on the show. I'm excited. Yeah, we are too. So as always, our general overview of what this episode is going to be about. So first, we're going to ask you some general questions about your work on gangs. Then we'll transition a little bit and ask you some broad questions about mass shootings. And then finally, we'll move into a book chapter of your book that is yet to be released. And we'll ask some questions about that. So With that being said, go ahead, Jen.
0: Thanks, Jose. All right, so like Jose mentioned, we're gonna start with just some general questions on gangs. And so, James, when it comes to gangs, a lot of your recent work on gangs is gangs across Europe and gangs in the internet. And so our first question for you is about international gangs. And so how widespread are gangs in Europe and how do they compare to American gangs?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So as you know, most of my work began in the UK. So I studied street gangs in London. And then later on, I've done some work with some other collaborators, Ross Duker, Robert McLean, Simon Harding, where we've also looked at gangs up in Glasgow, Scotland. And then I've collaborated with Robbie Rocks on Gangs in the Netherlands, with Elke van Helmont, Gangs in Belgium, and and other projects as well. And I think what's interesting about this is, you know, a lot of this work was born out of the Eurogang program. And, you know, Eurogang has a sort of 20-year-plus history, you know, originating with the work of Matt Klein and Cheryl Maxson and some of the real leading scholars in the field. But it was really originated out of this question of like do gangs even exist in Europe and there was this question that essentially they don't was was really the prevailing wisdom or at least as we thought of gangs and of course that's the classic Eurogang paradox which is that our expectations of what gangs look like and feel like and sound like are all originated from the United States and if they don't fit that template then you can't call it a gang and so There's obviously a huge literature and a huge debate around that sort of stuff. And I kind of walked into that unknowingly as a young scholar, sort of on the streets of London, looking at these groups of young people engaged in crime, violence, and other things, and thinking, well, they look a lot like gangs to me. And maybe those labels were not necessarily as viable. In terms of prevalence rates, I don't think we have great data on that, actually the surveys and, and some of the traditions that you would have in the United States are just not that well-established throughout Europe at the moment, to be able to unequivocally say, like, this is the number. And you always get those definitional issues about when is a gang a gang and, and, other, and other things as well. But the thing, I, the thing I've i learned in my research is, you know, at the end of the day, gangs are young people. And if we think of them through that lens, then you start to see that their lives are both the same and different from other young people. And that's where really the work around the internet and those other factors came into play as well, because you started to see that this was influencing the dynamics on the street and having an impact in that way. The other, one last thing I just want to say on this, which I think is important, as I mentioned, the academics often are shaped by the American understanding of the gang. The young people are shaped by it too. And I think that's actually really important to think about, which is we can sort of sit back in the ivory tower and say like, well, that's an American idea and young people don't think that way. But we have a global culture. And young people in Britain and in the Netherlands and in, and in Scotland and in other places, they are on the internet, they watch movies, And so they replicate elements of the gang. And there is this sense of like, well, if you want it to look like a gang, and it's got to look like a gang. And so there is a kind of degree of kind of mimicry going on with the way in which young people present themselves. And there's a performative aspect to gang membership that I think is, is anchored in the lived experience in the United States that then gets kind of exported to these other locations. So, that was, I think, really important as well in in, in my work, at least, is to see the influence of the American gang on these gang structures and on these lives of young people throughout Europe.
0: That's really interesting. So, Jose is actually guest lectured for one of my classes talking about gangs. And one of the sections he touched on was gangs internationally. And he showed pictures of like different gangs from that were in Europe versus in the United States, and had the students guess, you know, is this an American gang or is it not? And talking about this mimicry kind of, and how the American gangs are influencing, like it's very difficult to tell the difference between some of these gangs, even based off of appearance. Some of them were even wearing like what Jose Chicago, Chicago Bulls, sh- like oh yeah jerseys and stuff. So like yeah, New
2: York Yankees, you know, like the popular American teams. Yeah, the influence, I think this is the the thing, particularly in the United Kingdom, because the language is the same. You know, they they often say that we are, we're like cousins, right? Mm Is the UK and and the US. But there is this sense of American popular culture is in many ways the United States' greatest export. Mm -hmm. And the United Kingdom has fully jumped on that bandwagon. I mean, like, if you switch on the television in the UK you know, 80% of the stuff you're gonna watch is produced in the United States. And so there's definitely that influence in all aspects of life. And yet, you know, some of the biggest fans of American sports are in the UK. I mean, you even have NFL games being played in the UK. So all those popular images and all that, that connection is there, both throughout, you know, kind of regular mainstream life, but then of course it also impacts the gangs as well. Going back to my point, they're just they're just young people, so they're doing what young people do, and that might be wearing a Chicago Bulls jersey or or, or something like that.
0: Right.
1: So on um, the topic of you know like the internet and pop culture and social media, and you've done some work on how gang members so sort of use the internet. Can you tell us a little bit more about that gangs and the internet?
2: Yeah, yeah. Thanks. The last. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think my first exposure to this was my first project, this ethnography of gangs in, in London, where I just started to notice, I mean, at this time, this is, and this makes me sound old, I guess, to you guys, but, you know, this was 2007, and seven, eight. you know, the iPhone is sort of a new thing at this time, but it really starts to transform the dynamics on the streets where you now have a camera with you at all times, And you can start to document your life on the street. And that then becomes part of the branding of the group and of the individual as well, to the extent where you can kind of prove and back up the claims that you'd make. I mean, a lot of this is around reputation. But now there's a sense of like, you can't just posture about this. You actually have to prove it. And those expectations started to come into into force when you really start to see the internet, social media, smartphones become become part of the phenomena. But in my work with Michelle Storrid, which I think really captured this probably the best in some ways, was what she really found in, in the work that she was doing in London was there was this really interesting dynamic relationship between the expressive aspects of the gang and the instrumental aspects of the gang. And that may sound a little jargony to some of your listeners. But when we think about the expressive nature of the gang, you know, like there's a lot of performance going on with gangs. You're trying to make yourself and your group appear bigger and badder and scarier than they really are. And that serves a number of purposes. And other people like Forrest Stewart and others have talked about this, which is, you know, if you are perceived to be bigger and badder than you really are, that can actually deflect attention. On the flip side, it might attract attention. So you take that dynamic and then you realize you can actually leverage that into the instrumental activities of the gang, meaning money making. If you are perceived as being big and bad and tough, well, you can use that then to attract new people into the group. You can use that to expand your operations if you're dealing drugs. There's a big phenomenon in the UK known as county lines, which is essentially the trafficking of of drugs and people to some extent as well, from urban centers like London to different locations outside of of the city. Well, when you show up in these new locations, you can use that social media content and the reputation that's associated with it to really project the identity of the gang and say, you don't want to mess with us because if you do, the boys are back in London and they are bigger and stronger than you are here in your local town. So we saw that the reputation and and the, the, the performative aspects of the group online were really serving a purpose to actually then be channeled into making money and doing the sort of more kind of you know, sort of the work of the gang, if you will. And so that was, that was a really interesting finding for us. And then one last thing is this more recently some work I did with Andrew Whitaker and colleagues again in London really looked at this sort of, if you think about a age crime curve, if, if you will, you kind of have a similar age crime curve for the way in which gangs operate with social media, which is as you start to move up that trajectory into kind of organized crime, maybe posting all your stuff on social media is not such a good idea. But at that lower, younger level, when you're still trying to you know, break out, essentially, and, and become a name on the street, the social media is really important. And so if you don't have that street capital, if you will, you need to get it. And the way to get it is to have build that reputation on the streets. If you've already got it, well, then too much attention is, is bad for business, as they say. And so there's this really interesting dynamic around the kind of age of the individual, but also the age of the group in terms of how it has a need for the use of social media. And so that was a, a recent paper we published in Computers and Human Behavior.
0: I'm curious, and I don't know if you looked at this, but if the gang itself is on the younger side, but it has memories members of all different ages. Is it like the younger individuals then that are kind of pumping up the gang, the gang versus like everyone in the gang?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's exactly it. That's what okay. we saw. It was the younger ones that were sort of getting hyped up in social media and the older ones who were sort of like, oh, I'm too old for this, you know. <laughs> and to some degree that is, I mean, this is again, I think it, it reminds me of almost what I said earlier. I don't want to be a broken record, but it's like, sometimes we overthink Mm -hmm. gang members. We're like, oh, they're gang members and that label is so powerful and everything. Like, They're just young people. And so they're doing what young people do. And what young people do is they live their entire lives on social media. Mm -hmm. So it's no surprise that young gang members are doing exactly the same thing. Now, are the consequences different? Yes. Are some of the dynamics different? Are some of the things they're posting different? Of course. But the, the fundamentals are all the same. It's, it's just uh, where it gets dialed up and dialed down in certain areas.
0: Right. Makes me think of that, the saying, like, picks or it didn't happen. Like, you <laughs> have to prove what you're right. doing, you know?
2: Yeah. 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 If a, tree, if a tree falls and there's no one there to tweet about it, it didn't happen. So, yeah, it, that's exactly it. And
1: so how common is it for online posturing to turn into, like, live conflict? violent conflict?
2: You know, that's one of those kind of thorny questions that I don't know if, if the literature itself has really got its hands around at the moment. and So I'm wary of the fact that I'm mostly a qualitative researcher, right? So I can point to very clear examples with interviews that I've conducted or observations that I've made on the streets where I've said like, well, that person posted something and then they got their ass kicked you know, 24 hours later and you can say, well, there's a correlation there, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of like the bigger question of, you know, how prevalent is this on a kind of, on a macro sense where you would really get into more of the quantitative evidence, I don't think that we fully know that yet and fully understand it. And so we kind of temper our expectations around it. But I will say this, in the interviews I've, I've done with young people, in the UK and in and in the US as well, social media is a kind of constant in their lives. You know, it's easy to say like young people just have their phones glued to their hands, but, but they really do. And you think about Jeff Lane and others who talk about the digital street. And it's this idea that our online lives and our offline lives are so heavily intertwined that you essentially can't... Dis- disaggregate and disentangle them. And to that extent, then you start to realize that there is a relationship between the offline and the online when it comes to things like violence. Because I've seen with my own eyes, when a fight breaks out in a playground at a school, the first thing I used to do when I was a kid was everyone crowded around and yelled, fight, fight, fight. Mm
0: -hmm. Now
2: everyone crowds around and they film it. And then within minutes, it's up on YouTube or whatever social media platform that the young kids are using, TikTok or whatever. And and then in turn, everybody's interacting with that content. They are posting about it, replying about it, commenting on it. And if you've been victimized, you're then re-victimized every time somebody else is commenting on it. And so the stakes feel higher. I think, is really the, the the dynamic there. And so it has that impact. But again, I temper my enthusiasm, if you will, for that kind of thesis, just simply because my work is mostly qualitative. And so you get a selection bias inherent with that. But for me, I do think it has an impact. And there's certainly plenty of examples where that is the case, posting rap videos online and, and other things. Right. Yeah, no, I
1: so go between quantitative um, in certain projects but you know right now with the NIJ evaluation that we're doing in Denver I'm mostly doing qualitative data collection with gang outreach workers and a lot of their discussions center around their clients and Facebook and Instagram and they talk about how they follow them and monitor them on social media because like that often gives them so like, maybe this kid doesn't quite want to talk to them about their gang involvement. But just by looking at their social media, they sort of determine like, yeah, this kid is deeply embedded in their gang, right? And so qualitatively, yeah, I think I'm in the same position where just on, on my observations and my interviews with them, like I could highlight sort of specific incidents where something started online and then kind of spilled over to the streets. And then uh, I guess it's for it's become a bit of a growing concern now with COVID and everything kind of sort of being forced online. And one of one of my I talk about a little bit
2: in, in a project that will hopefully come out soon, but we'll see. Well, I look forward to reading that when it does. And then a recent paper I had with Robbie Rocks and was also looking at this hybridization of crime, is what we were talking about. And and it speaks to the idea that you also have crime that occurs both online and offline simultaneously. And so, you know, you might be dealing drugs, for instance. Well, some of those drug sales are going on on the streets, and that's happening in person. But at the same time, you're texting people, posting things on social media to set up the drug buy, right? And so... It's not a case that like they're mutually exclusive. That there's definitely an overlap and an interaction there. And and so so yeah, I think I think that's really what it what it's about. All
1: right. So the next thing we want to talk to you about, James. So in 2020, you wrote an article with David, and you've also written a few op-eds on this topic. And it it's, it, it's all David's fault. He's <laughs> to blame. <play>. Uh, <laughs> and I was even with you two at, at Eurogang a couple of years ago where we talked about gang That's databases. Right. And gang databases are super controversial. Like, if you want to get... That's so an understatement. Riot, <laughs> riot yeah. Up, <laughs> yeah, that was that, the PG-13 version yeah. of, yeah. yeah. Like, we've all been around the gang database discussion, and, you know, it can get people really fired up. And there's a strong sort of pushback against gang databases and people calling for them to be abolished, but... I think one of the interesting takes that you and David take is that the opposite of bad data is not no data, that instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we should focus more on making sure that the data that's being collected is good, right? First, how would you respond to the people that say like we need to get rid of them because they just increase racial profiling and discrimination? And if we are too focused on collecting good data, what exactly would that look like?
2: Yeah, wow. Just throw me under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. These are really important public policy questions, right? And I and I I one hundred percent agree. Like the current state of gang databases is appalling. And the disproportionality that we see, particularly for black and minority ethnic populations, is just shocking. And there's clearly selection biases. We've seen the excesses of police use of force outside of gangs. I mean, I'm living right here in Minnesota, which has been the epicenter of that issue over the last year or so, particularly with George Floyd and everything else. And so there's so much there, I think, to unpack. And I think the reality is that many of those concerns are Mm -hmm. absolutely valid and, and real. And that's one of the things that David and I really focused on it in this which was what are the key critical debates and how do they weigh up to the extent of the gang literature and what we know about gangs and some of the things that we were really highlighting is if we know that gang membership is a temporary state why do we have permanent gang databases like that doesn't add up if we know that people cycle out of gangs every 2 years then every 2 years we should be auditing the databases and if you're not a gang member anymore then you should be free to go, so to speak. But that's not a practice that's sort of institutionalized across the board. But to your broader question about, okay then, but how do you get good data then? I think for me, the question I always ask and sort of step back with is, you know, if we want to make informed decisions, evidence-based practices and those type of things, you don't do those in the absence of data. But it also comes down to, like, what is the data being used for? And I think where David and I see problems is when that data then become, gets fed into things like sentencing enhancements, and it, and it becomes very punitive. And the whole purpose of the gang database seems to be very punitive. It seems to be that, like, we're in this, you're in this database so that we can do more harm to you. And I think for us, we'd like to see the focus shift entirely on, if you think about people like Andy Papachristos and others that look at these networks of violence and the ways in which victims and offenders overlap and are all part of this sort of same small world, if that's the case, then we have to be absolutely tracking that small world so we can provide the intervention and the prevention necessary to get people out of that network And to intervene before violence occurs. And so I think we'd like to see gang databases that are not just sort of draconian ways of like keeping people sort of suppressed in this world, and more as a way of like, how do we empower so that we can target individuals, not with punishment, but with, you know, services and resources and alternatives and you know, stopping the next murder, the next shooting. So that's really, really important, I think. And if done right, you would hope that it would actually build trust with communities. But of course, it's not been done right yet. And maybe it never will be. You know, perhaps David and I were a little naive to think that we could have an agenda to reform this in a way that it could be used proactively and in a positive way. But I think, really, for us, it's more a case of, like, this isn't necessarily about punishment, which is, I think, how it's used now. It's more about intervention and using it in that type of a way. And so that's why I think we need to see those changes. And really in recognition of what do we know about gang members? What do we know about the transitional nature of gang membership? What do we know about the dynamics of victims and offenders? How do we apply that logic to these gang databases as opposed to you know databases that have children in them and databases that you know you're in them for and you you're ninety years old and you're still in the database you know that type of stuff needs to needs to change
1: yeah it's such an interesting topic right and you know I've been doing some work with with you and David on this area looking at gang legislation and yes like, it's just amazing how much variation there is on gang databases so you'll have like a state like Colorado that basically has a a statute that's, I don't know, maybe like two sentences long, it says, yeah, we'll have a gang database and it'll be overseen by the Bureau of Investigations. But then you have a state like California that just has pages upon oh, pages upon pages, like this is what our gang database is going to look like, this is what needs to happen for someone to be put in the gang database. And then, you know, cow gangs has, has come under a lot of fire. And so now you have even more pages on like, okay, this is how we used to do it, but this is how we're going to do it now. I get like the federal government sort of kind of has a database, but it's really more like we're just going to dip our hands in like everyone else's
2: cookie jar, not necessarily have (laughs) one of our own. But that's a trend I think we see in many different ways as well. And I think, you know, there's the cliche of like sunshine is the best disinfectant, right? But you think about police accountability. You know, if we were having this conversation five or six years ago and someone said, you know, how many times in a given year, do the police shoot and kill somebody? We'd have been like, I have no idea. I have no idea. But thanks to kind of the Guardian newspaper, the Washington Post, and, and and then other kind of activist organizations, we started to count those numbers. And it was only when we had those numbers did everybody start to realize like, whoa, there might be a problem here. And so... I think this is the other point about like the absence of, you know, it's, it's not bad data and then no data. I think we need good data because we need that data to be able to shed light on the things that are right and wrong in this world to make those types of decisions. And so we hear time and time again that we need a centralized repository for, for example, officer-involved shootings. Well, if you extend that logic further, you're like, well, yeah, but we should be using good data to be making those decisions. And I think that's really what the, the crux of the argument was about. It was a recognition that you know if you don't have data, stuff's gonna be going on in the darkness. And that's never a recipe for good things. So you want a transparency and accountability. You want good guidance. And like you say, one of the biggest challenges we have is 50 states, 50 different rules. There really needs to be kind of better model policies and greater coherence between those, those two. Because that's the other thing. Gang members, it's like guns. Gang members travel amongst straight lines, right? So you kind of knew, you do need a sort of national perspective on this as opposed to just states' piecemeal patchwork of the way in which they do this practice.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's start to somewhat move into our next topic on mass violence and mass shootings, but to do this kind of transition between your two areas of study. Because it
2: feels so so abrupt, right? Welcome to my life. (laughs) Right.
0: It does. I mean, there is definitely, it seems like a departure, but based off of the book chapter that we had the pleasure of reading, I mean, there's a, there's a transition point for you. So we're kind of curious, like, how did your work with gangs kind of influence you know, your transition or your interest into mass violence and mass shootings.
2: Yeah, it is. Some people have asked me this. It's kind of like, how did you end up doing this? You know, like why? And I suppose I have like two or three answers to that question. I think number one is I like having a broader research agenda. Right. I love the work I do with gangs and you know, it served me really well for the last decade and being able to collaborate with the people I've been able to collaborate with, it's just been a privilege. But at the same time, I'm like, if I want to have a long career in academia, I need things that are going to keep piquing my interest. And, and a little bit of diversity and a little bit of variety, I think, can be a good thing in that regard. You know, if I'm going to still be doing this when I'm in my 60s, I don't know how much more I'm going to have to say about gangs you know then so that's a little bit of a part of it but the real answer to that question is i was in the uk studying gangs studying violence on the streets now the vast majority of violence in that context is knife crime so when you talk about gangs you're often talking more about knives not guns but i still had some exposure to gun violence in the course that i w- of the work that i was doing and Interestingly, during my fieldwork for the PhD in the book, I ended up doing a kind of like a stint with Scotland Yard's Specialist Firearms Command. And I even took a trip with them from the UK to Los Angeles. And we spent two weeks, it was me and a bunch of police officers, with the LA County Sheriff, we went up to San Francisco and others, looking at policing gangs, believe it or not. And what was weird about it is when we came back, all these highly trained firearms officers from Scotland Yard were like, wow, that's how you don't police gangs, was kind of how they concluded this. Because, you know, you're comparing apples and oranges. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: But all that being said, like, I was starting to get a little bit of exposure to this idea around firearms and, and at least understanding them a little bit. More And actually, my dad was a firearms instructor with the police for a little while and and was a member of a gun club, and I grew up sporting shotguns and that type of stuff. And so that was the kind of background. Well, anyway, you move from the UK to the US. You call yourself a gang scholar or gang expert or whatever one wants to label you, and they're like, how can you be talking about gangs when all you talk about is knives? (laughs) So, of course, as I live and now work in the United States, you kind of have to reinvent yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you start to realize like, well, actually, if I'm gonna be talking about violence here in the US, it's not knife crime, it's gun violence. So I think that was really the the way in. It was sort of like, I had a little bit of expertise and knowledge about gun violence. Now I'm in the United States, I'm gonna to have to kind of embrace that because otherwise my research agenda is gonna dry up real quick. <laughs> There's not enough stabbings to keep me in business was the kind of <laughs> kind of reality. So where it really starts to change, though, is in 2017, myself and my colleague, Gillian Peterson, who's a psychologist, we were just getting fed up with what seemed to be, and this is a little flippant to say it this way, but it just felt like every single day there was a mass shooting. And we were just, we were angry. And I'll be honest, I was angry as a Brits living in the United States, like, why are my children going through active shooter drills at school? And why is it that every time I switch on the news, I'm hearing about another mass shooting? And then they wheel out the so called experts who are like, well, it's all about violent video games. And I'm like, no, it's not, because there aren't any mass shootings in Japan, but there's plenty of violent video games there. And Jill and I were just sort of like, you know what? There's got to be a better way to have this conversation. And there's got to be a better way to think about solutions to this problem. And so we just decided like on a whim, like, should we study mass shootings? And we were like, yeah, okay. And and so that's where the the project really started. It was only after we got a grant from NIJ to actually like make it official, Mm -hmm. did we really realize like, oh wow, we're really studying this now. This is not just like us two, you know, going on a new research agenda. This is actually going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the last sort of three or four years, it's, it's really, really been a big part of our lives.
0: Yeah, it's a cool transition. I can see the three different parts kind of coming together.
2: Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, it's sometimes it's luck and sometimes it's not. But I think for, the one thing that was really interesting is, you know, Jill as a psychologist, Really was looking at this phenomenon of mass shootings from that perspective of you know you often hear that conversations around is this mental health is this mental illness and then me as a sociologist by training, I was coming at it much more from those sort of cultural aspects and I was thinking more about like well, how much is firearms in play here like how much of that is the opportunity factor there and then at the same time was thinking about well what about things like social media and I mean, all the stuff I've studied with gangs, you know, the kind of group processes and all this type of thing, does that translate when you start to think about extremist groups and being online on, you know, chat rooms, studying mass shootings? Are there similar elements there? And so it just really piqued our interest. And I think those two perspectives really kind of jelled well together and gave us this kind of holistic look at the phenomena.
1: Okay, so james here's here's the big question for you. how do you define a mass shooting <laughs> yeah that's a great question so when
2: i so when you say how do you define I so I'll you answer in like general yeah exactly no so here's the reality. how do I define it James Densley human being, father, husband, how do I define it anytime multiple people get shot right yeah so When you think about things like the Gun Violence Archive, for instance, which has done an incredible job documenting multiple shootings. And here's the other thing, I'm a gang scholar, right? So a drive-by gang shooting when multiple people get shot, that's a mass shooting, right, on on all, all those levels. But, and this is important, you want to be careful about comparing apples and oranges. And so that we know from the vast literature on this that the cycle of gang violence, Scott Decker and, and you know, Andy Papachristos and others who've really studied this work over time, those dynamics are very different versus a guy walks into Walmart, opens fire and kills people. We're talking about very different victim-offender dynamics there. And so all that being said, when I answer that question more from the academic standpoint, I fall back on the fact that there is 30-plus years of literature on mass shootings. Folks like you know James Allen Fox and, and, and others who, who've dedicated their lives to this mm-hmm. subject matter. And they're very clear that you know, there is a standard definition, and it's four or more people killed in a public space, a public mass shooting where you don't have those kind of existing dynamics around organised crime, gangs, but also as well, even domestic violence. So a domestic murder-suicide has a kind of different feel to it than those public mass shootings. And so really for our work, uh, the Violence Project, and and when we had to define mass shootings to do this work, We took it from that perspective. It was four or more people killed in a public space was, so we're looking at shootings at schools, churches, restaurants, and and so on. That was the the definition that we used. But at the same time, the reason I hedged my bets a little bit is because I want to recognize that those types of shootings represent less than 1% of daily gun violence in this country. And we do need to acknowledge that all because your shooting doesn't fit that template, that doesn't make it any less of a tragedy, and it doesn't make it any less important from a public policy standpoint to do something about this. Those victims deserve peace and justice just as much as anybody else's. But it's just a case of you've got to be clear with your definitions. So that you can tailor your solutions to the real problem, and that's I think what we we've tried to do with this work. Yeah, I think
1: I don't know about you, Jen, but up until we read, or sorry, up until I read your chapter, I hadn't thought about how is a mass shooting defined. I guess I fell into the camp that most people do, like I recognize it when I see it type of deal. But then reading, and then it so when Jen and I were discussing this yesterday, were so you then you have a shooting like the most recent one in Austin where only three people died So is that not a mass shooting? And then what if maybe there are no casualties, but you end up with a bunch of injuries? Is it, so it, so it was just like I, I didn't know that there was like an FBI definition to it and that that was it
2: Yeah, but I think you're highlighting the limitations of that definition and I think we've been very clear I think we've we've tried to be very tr- clear and transparent throughout our work to be like this is an imperfect definition. You could make the case that death is different from injury. I think that's quite clear in some ways, right. but at the same time, you know, so the difference between three getting killed and four, I mean, that just might be aim. That might be distance. That might just be how close you are to the hospital. That's just luck nine times out of ten. So. Having these kind of arbitrary thresholds is tricky. And so, like I say, we, we're just falling back on a literature that exists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there, is, there is something different about some of these shootings versus versus others, I think. And then in turn, they have different outcomes that we can do something about them. But again, I think the point's well taken, which is that you almost create a hierarchy of gun violence when you do this. And there is a sense that you're, you sometimes are missing the, the bigger the bigger piece there. So, yeah, these are the kind of thorny issues. But it also reminds me, you know, we were just talking about gangs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, wow, we spent 100 years trying to define gangs and we still can't do it. You know, we've got a consensus Eurogang definition that most people don't like. So I think we always know you're doing important work when everybody's in disagreement with each other. <laughs> And that seems to be kind of some of the same dynamics that are going on there. And there is a little bit of that, Jose, what you just said, you know it when you see it type of aspect mm-hmm. that people have applied that logic to things like gangs and organized crime and, and other aspects. And I think mass shootings is now the topic that people are kind of starting to think about again, that they're revisiting those definitions and thinking, well, is that is that what we're talking about here? So, so yeah.
0: Right. So growing up, like the most common mass shooting that I always heard about was Columbine from in 1999 and since then it's and especially recently it feels like the frequency of mass shootings is just like skyrocketed and so I'm kind of curious like has there been an increase in mass shootings since Columbine or are we just hearing about it more often?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, Columbine's a watershed moment for for a number of reasons. You know, it was kind of the first mass shooting of the internet age. And not only that, the shooters themselves spent an intentional amount of time laying the sort of the the breadcrumbs for others to follow in their footsteps in many ways. They left the kind of archive that people were fascinated by. So yes, Columbine really does stay in, in memory for those reasons. You know, so what's so interesting is in our database we have 170 mass shootings from 1966 to the present day, and we see that half of the database is in the last 20 years. So you can see right there that that increase is real, like it's it's there. And even when you control for population, because that's the other thing, a lot of people throw that at us. They're like, "Well, America's much bigger now than it was mm-hmm. in the 60s." Like we're not that stupid. Like yes, we've controlled for population, it's not that hard to do the math. And even when you control for population, you do see, yes, it's not quite as dramatic, but you do see that increase. The other thing I think that's really worth pointing out is that those mass shootings have got deadlier during that period as well. The body counts have gone up to the extent where 16 of the 20 deadliest mass shootings have occurred in the last 20 years, 16 of the 20 deadliest. Yeah. You know, Las Vegas of course being the worst in that sense. But also eight of that group of 16 were since 2015. So it really does kind of eat at you when you when you look at those numbers and you look at those very recent cases, Las Vegas, Orlando, El Paso, that are right there on that list, that are are literally in recent memory. So that for us shows kind of statistically, but also kind of different ways of how you slice it, that we are seeing an increase in mass shootings, but then we're also seeing a greater deadliness of of these types of shootings as well. And that's just based on our kind of narrow definition of mass shooting. But I think other data sets are kind of saying the same sort of thing. They're seeing these multiple shootings increasing across the board. And it's sad. Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: It's sad that
2: this is like the, the reality that we have to live in. Right. And I know this
1: probably, probably is going to vary, but how do shootings compare in the U.S. to other places like in terms of severity and frequency?
2: So, you know, there are some studies out there that have tried to really get to grip with this. And there was even like a bit, of, a bit of a fight, if you will, between John Lott, who's best known for, you know, the kind of more guns, less crime type of argument, and Adam Langford, who's a scholar that's done a lot of work in the area of mass shootings. I mean, they, they literally like went back and forth in a series of papers where they were kind of yelling at each other for a while. Because Adam Langford's work, essentially showed that the United States had about six times its share of mass shootings compared to the rest of the world. John Lott's work had a very liberal definition of mass shooting. He included kind of guerrilla attacks and terrorism and and other aspects in in that definition and tried to sort of reduce that, that number down. But actually, even when you go back to that data set and reanalyze it, which is actually something that we did, Adam Langford did it too, and he published a paper about it, but we did it for our book. We also kind of reanalyzed that data and looked at it internationally. And we see that, yeah, the United States has about six or seven times its share of mass shootings compared to other countries. It's stark. And I just will say kind of a little bit more anecdotally than that is, you know, 25 years ago, just last month was the dunblane massacre which was a school shooting in Scotland in the united kingdom horrible horrible watershed moment in the uk history you know 16 children were killed a teacher was killed it was it was horrific after that there was a huge campaign for reform and there was a ban on handguns now i'm not suggesting that that is the only solution to these problems but just to have you think this figure this out you look at that the united kingdom has not had a school shooting since zero none and in the united states we have literally hundreds of firearm discharges in schools every single year if you have a, a broad definition of every time a gun goes off in a school and in terms of mass shootings you know we've had six you know, in that post Columbine era, if you in that in that same time frame that we're talking about, mass shootings. You know, you think about Parkland and Red Red Lake, Columbine and others. So you look at that data and you think, okay, something here is not quite adding up. And again, even when you control for population, it doesn't wash out. You know, the, the United States—it's kind of American exceptionalism at its worst—that we see these these types of mass shootings occurring when you compare it to peer nations the US really does stand out
0: all right so we're just for our audience we're recording this episode on april 21st 2021 and so over the last month or so roughly there have been like numerous mass shootings in the united states so just to name a few we had the boulder colorado king super grocery store shooting The shooting at the Indianapolis-Indiana FedEx facility, the Orange California shooting at a business complex, and the Atlanta, Georgia spa shootings. And so with that being said, it seems like these events are kind of like back to back to back. And so like contagious for lack of better words. And so I'm kind of curious: like, is there any evidence that there is kind of a contagion when it comes to mass shootings? And if so, does anyone have an idea for why there's these clustering of events?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. The most famous study on this is Sherry Tower's work that looks at this kind of contagion effect.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And essentially, comparing it, using a mathematical model, essentially, of contagion, and then then comparing it among school shootings, mass shootings, and others, they found that there was a sort of a a 0.3 for every mass shooting, essentially meaning that when you've had three, a fourth is imminent, if you, if you think of it that way. And they chalk that up in that study to the media, the media cycle, the media coverage, that it plants in people's minds that this is something that we do in America, so to speak. Now, in our, in our research, we do see this type of clustering, and there's examples throughout history. 2019 was another one. We had mass shootings in Gilroy, California, El Paso, Texas, then up in Dayton, and then a little bit after that, another mass shooting in Texas. So four in the month of August of that year. So we've we've seen this kind of cycle before in in other aspects. Now, in in our research, a couple of things I think it's important to think about. In addition to building this database of mass shooters, we also interviewed incarcerated mass shooters. We interviewed the people that knew them and other people in the orbit of these shootings. And one of the things that really came out of this work is that mass shooters study other mass shooters. And so for us, it's a little bit more than just like media coverage. It's not just that you turn on CNN, you see a mass shooting, and you think, oh, I'm going to do one too. It's more a case of actually deeply researching the lives of these individuals. And we see that mass shooters like see themselves in the lives of other mass shooters, It's like a model for behavior. And again, when you take another step back, what's important to think about is if you think about contagion, here we are in a global pandemic, right? So everybody's now a budding epidemiologist. We we have the language now to understand this, right? So you think about two important factors with this is susceptibility, right? The elderly are more susceptible to getting... Covid or the flu or whatever it is, right there. So they're at higher risk. That's susceptibility. Then you also have exposure. You know, if we lock ourselves in our houses, we can't be exposed. But if you're living in a care home, your exposure is greater. If you're in prison, your exposure is greater, right? And the data is very clear about this with Covid. So those same rules essentially apply for mass shootings. What we see is susceptibility. These are individuals who've had terrible histories of trauma in their lives, and they reach a very identifiable crisis point in their life. And it often is a suicidal crisis. They really are at a point where they don't care whether they live or die. And a mass shooting is intended to be a final act. Nobody gets out of a mass shooting. You don't throw on a disguise and run to the border. Mass shooting is intended to be a final act. So there's your susceptibility right there. If you're in crisis, then maybe this is a solution to your problems is kind of the idea. Then there's the exposure. And the exposure, I think, is that media content. But more than that, we see it as an intentional studying of the lives of mass shooters. So it's not just flipping on the news and seeing the coverage. It's being immersed in the darkest corners of the internet in the lives of these individuals, Columbine memes, studying these folks, seeing themselves in their lives and then thinking, okay, this might be a solution to my problems. And so I think there's a kind of sort of deeper mechanisms there than just sort of saying it's the media. But one thing that's really important with that is the media has to be more responsible the way it does its reporting. And you can take a lot of learning from how we treat suicide, for instance, in the media. You know, If you ever talk about suicide in the media, you always include the number Of the suicide prevention hotline. You don't dwell on the means and the motive and all this type of thing. We've got to get much better about that in our coverage of mass shootings, because sometimes the coverage of mass shootings feels like celebrity watch. And that in turn feeds the kind of fame-seeking aspects of this type of a crime. And so one of the reasons in the book that we we 've written is we have this kind of no notoriety protocol, which is we 're not naming these individuals we 're not glorifying their actions and it's you know it's hard to write a book when you can't say somebody's name, yeah. but actually you start to realize that well, maybe it's not that difficult actually all the details are the same, but that's just the the decisions that you make and so so there's important aspects there when you think about the contagion effect of trying to mitigate that so in your book, you mentioned that you know, as
1: these mass shootings keep happening, we sort of become more desensitized to them, but that but the, the fear of them remains ever present. Can you tell us a little bit more about how is it that we can become emotionally dull to mass shootings, but still remain
2: highly fearful of them? Yeah, because that seems like a paradox on some level, right? Because fear is an emotion and things. I think what it is is that our public spaces feel vulnerable. You know, you shouldn't have to be worried about going to the movie theatre or the grocery school or to school. A shooting should occur. But there is that kind of gnawing, nagging feeling. And what's, I think, frustrating about this is we have, we've kind of abdicated responsibility in some degree. We've just sort of thrown our hands up and said, well, you know, we just got to train for the inevitable. We can run and hide and fight our way out of this. And our work shows that this is not inevitable, it's preventable, Mm -hmm. right? But unfortunately, this cycle of violence gets to a point where it becomes to feel routine. The media coverage feels routine. I mean, journalists now are even flagging this idea, like essentially the stories are like pre-scripted and they just insert like the number of casualties, the place it occurred. There is this sort of sense that, it just feels like we've seen this story play out before. And so while that happens, it's hard to continue to kind of grieve and experience those emotions time and time and time again. And so I think people sort of shut themselves out from it. And then the focus is kind of like we have to harden ourselves Mm -hmm. to this, right? We're going to target harden ourselves. If you think about it from a criminological theory standpoint, it's like we're going to, build metal detectors in our schools and hire more police officers, and this will be our solution to the problem. And I think that is not the right emotional response to this because I think that's increasing the fear and anxiety without really addressing the trauma and the grief that's going on in our communities. And so that's this weird paradox with this, is that there's a sense of inevitability about this, which I I don't think is the right way to be thinking about it as we kind of move forward.
0: You kind of mentioned this slightly in your last, what you just said, but so given like this ever present fear, what are some of the solutions or methods that we as a society have taken to kind of respond to mass shootings?
2: Well, your listeners are going to have to buy the book. Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) No, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, so the subtitle for the book is How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic, right? And so we were very sort of careful with this to be thinking about, we want this to be solution orientated and we want it to be hopeful because otherwise it can feel overwhelming. And we've identified a kind of, it's a sort of conceptual model, if you will, for things that mass shooters tend to have in common. Childhood trauma is a sort of foundation upon which a lot of this is built. You then have This crisis point. It's often a suicidal crisis that people reach. You then have this kind of social script for what people follow, studying other mass shooters on the internet and and, and other aspects. And then you have finally the opportunity to perpetrate these crimes. That means access to people and places, but it also means access to firearms. We have spent nearly all of our efforts over the the post-Columbine, and maybe even before, On the opportunity side of the equation. Huge debates around gun safety, gun control, gun restrictions, massive multi-billion dollar security and safety industry. But we haven't done much on the other aspects as well, and we see all four of them as being inflection points. So you've got these kind of four different areas where we can be intervening. Trauma, crisis, script, opportunity. Not only that, you can be intervening at different levels of explanation, right? I mean, here's, here's the thing. Jim Shaw, right? you got to love Jim Shaw, legend. Talks about the level of explanation problem in criminology. Well, I think we were inspired a little bit by that. It wasn't a perfect fit, but we were like, you know what? There are things on the macro level, there are things on the micro level, and there's things in between that we can all be doing to solve these problems, right? So when we think about it that way, you know, on that macro societal level, you've got big policy, you know, so that might include some sensible regulations around firearms, nothing infringing on people's Second Amendment rights, but just, you know, thinking about permit to purchase or universal background checks, things like that. But that needs societal input. If you think about trauma and crisis, I mean, like, we need a greater social safety net in this country. And then that's been abundantly clear during the pandemic. And I think the other thing about all this stuff, by the way, is there's a diffusion of benefits. It's not, we don't just do it because it might solve a, the mass shooting problem. We just do it because it's the right thing to do on so many different levels. You know, There is a diffusion of benefits that this could reduce suicides, it could reduce accidental shootings, it could reduce poverty and frustrations that people have in, in their lives. Then on that kind of institutional level, if you will, You know, we could be all trained in things like crisis intervention and suicide prevention. We flag that as being really important. If we are more attuned to one another when people are struggling, what we see in our data with mass shooters is there's a lot of leakage. People know in in advance this could happen, but they don't quite know where to report that information and they don't know what to do with it. So that's a big part of it as well and then on the individual level there's just things we all can be doing so case in point 80% of school shooters get their guns from their parents they just they're just not locked up securely on an individual level safe storage firearms that doesn't require an act of congress that's just common sense but that could solve this mass shooting problem, but not only that, that could prevent a suicide. It could prevent a child picking up a gun and discharging it and killing a sibling. There's a diffusion of benefits for all those aspects. And so the book really wa- walks through that essentially, which is if we've got these commonalities, what are the solutions associated with them? And then how do they operate on all these different levels? What is what is it that you as a mom, as a teacher, as a police officer, what could you do tomorrow without having to pass any new laws that could change this? If you're the boss, what can you do within your organisation or within your institution that could change this? And then if you're a policymaker, if you're a president or a congressperson, what could you do to change this? And so we're trying to approach this from all those different levels to have a kind of holistic solution to to violence
0: all right so since we're kind of into the book now let's give kind of like a summary or i'm going to give kind of a summary of your book and then we can dig in a little bit more as much as you want about those patterns and kind of like the the reason for the book to begin with so this book is authored by jillian peterson and our guest james Dinsley. it's called the violence project how to stop a mass shooting epidemic the book will be available is it September seventh?
2: September seventh. Okay. Yes.
0: And currently, you can and all good bookshops. Oh, <laughs> all, all bookshops and what it, you can pre-order it right now on. You Amazon.
2: can pre-order it right now. It's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and okay. yeah.
0: So go out for anyone who's interested and pre-order it. But just to kind of give a rundown summary of the book. In this book, Jillian and James examine the life histories of more than 170 mass shooters to establish the root causes of mass shootings and to figure out how to prevent them. To accomplish these goals, they use a variety of sources, including first-person accounts like diaries, suicide notes, social media, as well as interviews with five mass shooting perpetrators, as well as interviews with people who knew the perpetrators of mass shootings, mass shooting survivors, parents of deceased victims, security experts, first responders, and FBI investigators. And they also use secondary sources, such as media coverage, court transcripts, school records, and autopsy reports. So lots of different sources for the data for this book. So yeah, that's kind of, is that a good summary?
2: That's a great summary, yeah. We should get you on PR for the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great.
0: Okay. So, kind of our first question leading into our full on discussion of the book is what inspired you and Jillian to not only write this book, but to establish the Violence Project, your nonprofit, nonpartisan research center?
2: The truth of the matter is, the Violence Project actually just started as like a code name for this research okay. project. Because of the ethical protocols and everything else, the data had to be confidential. Mm-hmm. It's a sensitive topic that we're talking about. You know, we're interviewing mass shooters were interviewing family members and so on and so forth. And so we kind of came up with this idea of the violence project as just being this, this sort of code name for what we were doing. But weirdly, unexpectedly, if I'm honest, it became like a, a brand. And I know that sounds weird, but it, but it just did like, you know, people started to talk about it. It's like, Oh, it's the violence project. And the violence project are doing this now. And we're like, you do realize the Violence Project is just two professors <laughs> on a shoestring budget, you know, trying to make, make this work. But then, you know, once we got the NIJ grant, which I mean, that grant has changed our lives, you know, yeah. I mean, I cannot thank the National Institute of Justice enough, you know, or scream it from the rooftops. Like, it really transformed everything about this project and enabled us to, to do things that we never would have been able to do otherwise. But what was interesting about that is, I think Jill and I, for better or for worse, came to a kind of conclusion of, we have to be more public about this project than perhaps we had been in other research pro- you know, I've published plenty of peer review articles and books and other things. And of course that's the business of academia and that's what you do and that's how you get tenure and promotion and everything else. And maybe I'm privileged enough as a full professor to be able to be like, I can break the rules now. But and so that is a privilege to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think Jill and I were like, you know what? This is an issue that's in the news. This is an issue that is affecting communities, you know, viscerally. Mm-hmm. We can't just bury that in a peer-reviewed journal article and hope for the best. So we Realised that this was an opportunity to really like be very more public facing about this. So when we built the database, and you know this was in the proposal, and NIJ signed off on it, and we were like, "Oh, okay," was we're going to make the data public, and we're going to make it public before we've even published on it. And we had colleagues be like, "What is wrong with you? Like that's career suicide, you know." And I'm like, "But I'm not in it for my career. I'm in it to try Mm -hmm. and stop mass shootings." So if we can put this database online free accessible right an excel spreadsheet basic that anyone and everybody can interact with we're going to get it, it's like strength in numbers right it's like okay it could be jill and i and maybe we bring in a couple of grad students or something like that but but there's only it's economies of scale like i want this thing in the hands of everybody i want I want PhD students, professors, journalists, concerned citizens interacting with the data so that they can produce with it. And we know there's like dissertations being written using it. And we know that it's featured in the New York Times and, and other places where people have interacted with the data. And that that's awesome. Like we wanted yeah, that. We wanted that. So we went into it very intentionally. Like this is a public criminology project. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be and people will hate us for it. And they'll say we're in the news too much and you didn't analyze the data well enough or whatever it is they'll complain about. And we were like, I just don't care. And, and I know that sounds really kind of flippant about it, but it, but that was really it. It was like, you know what, if we can just get policymakers to interact with this data, maybe we can move the needle on this issue. And so the violence project ended up becoming the kind of like, that's the brand for this. Go get it, go, go, go after it, go run with it. And so that's, that's kind of where it came from. And, and, and the approach that we took with it, it was very unconventional,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: but at the same time, it's been life-changing. Like it's helped us see that like, there's a world outside of academia that doesn't play by the same rules as academia. Mm -hmm. And, and if you can't beat them you've got to join them to some degree, mm-hmm. and so that's what we've we've done with this you know we've we've published more in op eds right. than we have in peer reviewed articles you know we've got we've got some peer reviewed articles that are out and we've got some that are under review right now and obviously we have the book as well so we we still played the academic game we had to do what we had to do, but I think we just we treated the project a little bit differently and Maybe we'll never get that opportunity again, but I'm glad we did it the way we did, and we just hope it. We hope it changes the conversation. Is re- is really the idea?
0: Well,
2: yeah, that's super commendable. And yeah, like I, we've all heard the stories of
1: people keeping their data under lock and key. Right. Yeah, either forever, or if they do make it public through uh, ICPSR, like you, you milk it as much as you can first, and then you kind of. Let everyone
2: else play off of it. Yeah, but. I remember we, we actually laun- we launched the database, version one of the database, and it was still a little bit raw and rough around the edges. That's, that's true. Like, we have no doubt about that, right? But we launched it just after ASC in 2019. And I remember talking to some people about this at ASC, and they thought we had lost our minds. <laughs> they couldn't believe. They were like, you're just going to put it on the internet. Like you got an NIJ grant, like you should you should be in criminology every week with a new article. Yeah. I'm like, why? I've I've got 50 peer-reviewed articles already. Like I don't need any more. Like let's just get it out there, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I say, like it was probably it's it probably a stupid career decision. And 10 years from now, when I'm fired or whatever, then, then it'll be like, yeah, remember that James Densley? Yeah, that was the end of his career. But but that was really that was really what we did. And like I say. Who knows, like how many students are going to write a dissertation with some of this data and, and, and stuff that we'll just never, we might not even know, like the impact that it ever has. But we, we just kind of threw it out there. And I mean, I will say this, the database has been downloaded thousands of times, thousands. And in just the last month, just in one month of that spate of mass shootings that we've had, we had about a 1,000 downloads. So we know people are interacting with this data, mm-hmm. and we know that it is making a difference in some, in some regards, and, and that's, that's exciting.
1: Yeah. So you
2: talked a little bit about these patterns that you
1: found, going through all this data that you have. Why was it important to sort of not just find these patterns, but also sort of highlight these patterns?
2: Yeah, I think everyone's always looking for like the profile of a mass shooter and maybe going into the project naively we we thought well maybe we'll find one and you start to realize like human beings are really complicated and there's not there's not a profile like we're not mind hunter like we we didn't find that profile <laughs> <Darn>. <laughs> i know i know i know cuz trust me i'd be retired now yeah. <laughs> but no it wasn't that that case but at the same time we saw these kind of pathways to violence and there were just these things that kept coming up. And, and I'll be honest, so the database is public and it's out there and it's an Excel spreadsheet. You just download it. Our interviews, of course, were different. The qualitative aspect of the work, you know we, inter- we did about 50 interviews for the book with family members and survivors and, and others. Obviously, that data is sacred, really, and has to be because of the ethical protocols, but also just the experiences that we had. I mean, literally spending weekends with parents of perpetrators or of victims who've lost loved ones. I mean, that was just life-changing. I mean, the humanity of that was just something else. I mean, it's something that I almost am emotional, like thinking about some of those exchanges that we had for that book. So the qualitative work was where we kind of, you know, it's classic mixed methods, right? You start to marry them together. So you see these data points in the database, and then you start to do these interviews and you think like, wow, this is starting to add up, you know, we're starting to kind of think about it in this, in this way. And so that kind of conceptual model that, that, you know, four things in common, so to speak for us, it really highlighted this pathway where you could see it starting in early childhood in many cases, all the way through to the act of the shooting itself. And then what was also unique about it was that all four were these inflection points where there was opportunities for intervention. And so what was interesting was we first introduced the world to that idea in an op-ed in the LA Times that went viral. And the editor at the LA Times at the time, they told us like it had like over a million downloads in, in a week or something. It was, it was obscene. But what she also told us was it was getting picked up on the right and on the left. There were commentators on both sides of the aisle that were like tweeting out the work and talking about it and everything else. And there was something about it, like it resonated because I think we highlighted that this is complex. Like it's not just it's mental health or it's guns, which is everyone wants to simplify it and make it easy. Like, no, it's actually all these intertwined factors together. And you can't just eliminate solutions because they're imperfect. You layer those imperfect solutions one on top of each other and you start to realize that it it looks right. And for whatever reason, it just started to kind of click with people that they could see the complexity. And, And I think that's one of the real reasons why we wanted to highlight that. Instead of just saying, you know, like, well, it's the guns, so we could, that's it. We, case closed, thanks, you know, thanks NIJ. We really wanted to sort of say like, let's, let's embrace the complexity here, but embrace it as opportunities for prevention. And that seemed to resonate. And hopefully in the book, it really resonates. We'd really love that if, if that can help change that conversation. So you don't just switch on CNN and someone comes on and says, ah, oh, it's mental illness again. And you're just like, no, it's not. It's so much deeper than this, and you've, you've got to embrace that complexity. Right, so you talk about the complexity
1: in, your, in the book. You talk about sort of taking a deep dive in the lives of the shooters. You also acknowledge that mass shootings are extreme violent events, but they're also comparatively rare events. And these patterns are not causal, but correlated. With, that's it. with these events and so what we want to do now and you know you've talked about the patterns that you found but we'd like to sort of walk through them one by one sort of ex- explicitly just and sort of maybe get a little more thorough with them if that's okay and, so, and then, so the first one and then sort of this one goes back to sort of like the childhood phase is that most shooters seem to experience childhood trauma or exposure to violence, usually at the hands of their parents. Can you tell us a little bit more on how this childhood experience can then lead to mass shootings?
2: Yeah, so we see it as being, I think, a it's almost like a foundation upon which a lot of the later life frustrations, disappointments, challenges that people have are built. I mean, you know, the classic ACEs study and and a lot of conversation now around adverse childhood experiences. So, So to some extent, this is not that unique to be thinking about it in that way. You know, admittedly in our database, there's quite a lot of missing data in this category. If you look at the database, you'll see there's quite a lot of missing data under this because public information, public records about the childhoods of these individuals, it's not always there, particularly when you go real back in history. But for the cases that we have, it was like overwhelming. Where we did have data, like we had data. And then when we conducted our interviews, everybody went back to that. And it was always around abusive fathers, abusive mothers, witnessing domestic violence, witnessing sexual violence, sometimes being victims of sexual violence as well, within the home. We had mass shooters whose parents had committed suicide, died by suicide. That, these were all like major, major traumatic events that people would, would describe and would, would talk about. And some of the trauma was just awful. So Jill, in a previous life, my co-author, Jill, she used, to be, she used to do death penalty mitigation in a previous life. And she, came up, she could have came up with this phrase, which was the worst the crime, the worst the story. And it was, when you look at these really extreme crimes, you go back and there's real terrible deep trauma there. And it was interesting because when we saw these lives of the mass shooters, we saw exactly that type of same thing really, really deep, terrible trauma. So again, like you mentioned rightly, a good social scientist should flag this, right, is it's correlation, not causation. There are millions of people who experience childhood trauma, don't go on to become mass shooters. Mass shooters are rare, rare people. But this was something that we just, it, it really stuck out to us. And, it, and it, I think it made us think there's something here that is laying a foundation for some of the struggles that come later.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like you know, a lot of people who experience abuse or trauma don't go on to be mass shooters, but a lot of mass shooters did experience abuse and trauma. Exactly, that
2: yeah, it's the, it. it's, it's the Robin's paradox, right? Yeah. That's exactly it, yeah. yeah.
0: So the second pattern then is that nearly all mass shooters reach this crisis point in the days or weeks or months leading up to the actual mass shooting. So what kinds of crises are common amongst these the perpetrators of mass shootings, and how are these crises linked to the mass shooting then?
2: Yeah, so we define a crisis as sort of anything that overwhelms your usual coping mechanisms. And there are signs of a crisis, whether it's increased agitation or depressed mood or, you know, these types of tangible signs that are noticeable. And It's a marked change in behavior from baseline, is is really how we think about a crisis. That behavioral change is key. So in the lives of mass shooters, about 80% of the time, there is that marked change in behavior. All of a sudden, they're more aggressive than usual. They're more depressed than usual. There's more anxiety than usual. There's something else going on here. And it's often tied to then a life event. So for workplace shooters, it might be getting fired from work is an example. Or getting fired from work is like the straw that breaks the camel's back. They're already in crisis, which might be why they get fired, and then that is enough to tip them over the edge. It could be bullying for school children, for instance, that again is that kind of straw that breaks the camel's back. But the crisis is, is rooted in lived experience, really. And how, it, how we see it is this market change in behavior from baseline. And to the extent where people notice, but they don't quite know what to do with it. And I think that's one of the key takeaways of our book is we're trying to suggest to people like, take notice, not because they might be the next mass shooter, that's rare, but just take notice because people around us are really struggling. And if you don't open your eyes, and your hearts to these people, people are going to you know, be in a really bad place. And so I think that's one of the real key messages here is a lot of this is just, you can prevent a mass shooting with just a simple act of kindness is really what it comes down to. And that doesn't cost anything. Now, do you need some other resources behind that? Of course. But sometimes just getting someone through that moment could be the key. And in our work, we've also interviewed some averted shooters. I mean, people who've gone to school with a gun in their backpack intending to perpetrate a shooting. And it's usually that human connection that gets them through that moment that they don't do it. And so that tells you kind of how important that is. So,
1: homicidal and suicidal ideation, it's fraught with a lot of uncertainty, and those going through it uh, seek guidance. Where do individuals who commit mass shootings go? For guidance on violence and how might this increase the likelihood of committing a mass shooting?
2: Yeah, so this is this idea of like social proof is what psychologists would call it. You know, it's like when in Rome, do as the Romans do, so to speak. And 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 so if you are in that state of crisis and you're trying to make sense of the world and understand your place within it, you are you're looking for answers. And increasingly in the last. 20 or so years with the rise of the internet, those answers are online. And that's true for all of us. Like, you know, when, when we're not feeling well, we Google it, right? And then Google tells you it's a brain tumor and you're like, right, Whoa, and you're dying. It's, and you're dying. It's, that's always the answer, right? Yeah. But it's you- sort of a similar kind of process here. which is the sad thing is, the answers you get online aren't good. And if you are somebody who's on that pathway to violence, the answers aren't good. And so that's where they start to kind of study the lives of these mass shooters and see that there's a script for this in our society. But I think we're also concerned about the broader script for this as well, beyond the internet and other aspects, which is we have normalized this type of violence with things like active shooter drills in our schools and metal detectors and the way in which the media coverage covers the news and things like that as well. And so we just have to be careful to avoid that, to to realize this isn't normal, like it shouldn't be normal, that this is the solution. So yeah, so that that is that kind of third piece, which is that kind of cultural script for violence that is part of American life, is one component of it, but it's also social media, the internet, and other aspects as well.
0: All right, and then the final pattern, which you've touched on this already as well, is that mass shooters, they have to have the opportunity to even carry out this shooting, which means, you know, access to firearms, access to people in places that I mean, in your book, you talk about this as like the people in places who represent their grievances or their emotional state at the time. And so how do mass shooters gain access to the firearms most of the time and as well as the people in places that they commit the mass shootings around?
2: Yeah, so, you know, this is the Criminology Academy, right? So some of this is like basic situational crime prevention and routine activities and thinking of it through those lenses in terms of both how the crimes occur, but also how you might go about with solutions and solving them. But then with the firearms piece, to answer your question, you know, the vast majority get guns legally, but that's almost actually more terrifying, I actually think, because it speaks to, and this is something, we have a whole chapter in the book about opportunity and, and these issues, is the, just the, sh- the sheer number of kind of loopholes within the system, you know, that you can purchase a gun without a background check, or that the background check, if it doesn't come back within three days, you default proceed, and so you can get the gun anyway. Or that the details weren't uploaded to the national background check database and so they flew under the radar even though it, they should have been flagged there was lots of examples where just the existing system hasn't you know served that purpose correctly and you often hear like even the staunchest pro gun folks would say we just need to enforce the existing laws and we're like yeah we do like that's true we do because at the moment they're not being well enforced and there are too many gaps in this and then, as I mentioned earlier as well, often for school shooters, for the younger ones that can 't get access to firearms through those kind of legal channels, then it becomes through family members and through through friends and that really comes down to this idea of safe storage and then I think the other piece about it is if you 've got individuals who are in crisis that 's not the time to be purchasing a firearm, but as we 've seen, even recently with some of the shootings that we 've had in, in Boulder. For instance, of people purchasing weapons within days of committing their crime, and so wait periods and, and other things, I think would be really effective means to you know, give that cooling off period so that this this doesn't occur. So there's lots there that we try to walk through, and we've got lots of kind of examples in the book where we highlight where things went wrong and what could have changed and, and been done differently.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. the fact that. Many of them get their guns legally. I think it's such an interesting point because one of the things that you always hear, or at least I always hear when something like this happens is, oh, all these new gun laws that are being proposed, all they do is take away guns from law-abiding citizens. Like, it's not going to stop the criminals. But most of the people committing mass shootings were law-abiding citizens who legally bought a firearm. Yeah. So, I don't know. There's like this contradiction there that doesn't seem to quite click
2: that I well, think it's interesting. And actually even deeper than that right is this concept of law-abiding yeah. like everyone's law-abiding until they're not right. Right? right and so that's also I think challenging to some degree as well I mean like so I'm a law-abiding citizen have I driven too fast on the highway yeah so technically I'm not law-abiding then mm-hmm. you know so And I think this is the only area where people would say like, well, you know, criminals will always be criminal. And so we don't need more laws. But you don't hear me like, well, murderers will always murder. So murder should just be not, you know, should be okay. Like no one says that. They only say this in the area of guns. And that's just odd to me. It's like, why is this so, so different? You know, Particularly as well, because all we're really talking about is regulations that the vast majority of Americans actually support, including gun owners. Gun owners are actually like, yeah, we should have universal background checks. They're the ones that actually are the best at pointing holes in this, is my experience. They're the ones that say like, oh yeah, we should not be doing this. But their voice, which is powerful, it gets drowned out by the extremities on these issues that have the bigger platform. But actually those everyday American citizens are just sort of like yeah this makes sense why wouldn't we do that but you don't hear those voices you only hear those at the extremes you know, yeah. that's the that's the challenge
1: yeah American gun culture is interesting but that's another
2: that's yeah you got to bring someone else on for that one <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah in uh, my best British accent I'll get in lots of trouble so uh, <laughs> yeah well Anything else you'd like to add, James? Before we close out? No. How long's your show usually? Is it normally six days? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it varies.
2: Yeah, yeah. We
1: discovered pretty early on that sticking to our thirty to forty-five minute time limit was not going it to happened. be a realistic thing. Sure,
2: so. sure. You could do this in part one, part two. So two. Yes. No, no, no. I think yeah. This has been great. It's been great just to chat, and it's yeah. been good to sort of share some of the the background on this and I appreciate it
0: yeah we appreciate you being on and being a guest so thank you again is there anything that you would like to plug other than the book anything else that you would (laughs) like to plug?
2: yeah I'm not really into that kind of shameless self-promotion but yeah yeah the book the book I mean the truth of the matter is like everybody wants their book to sell right of course that's true that's just human nature but we genuinely want people to read this book. We really do. Because we hope it's, gonna, it's going to have people think differently about this issue and move us a bit closer to a world where there aren't mass shootings. I would like the book to put me out of business on that regard. That would be nice. So, well,
0: and I think it's cool that you have kind of the prevention ideas at all different levels, you know, individual, community, federal type levels, just depending on the situation. So it's really something that everyone can kind of consume and do something to try and make the world a better place.
2: That's hope.
1: Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I think many of us share your sentiments, James. I think we're in one, in one of the very few disciplines where our work is to kind of put ourselves out of
2: work.
0: Yeah, Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that would be nice, right?
0: Yeah. All right. And then where can people find you? email twitter
2: anything like oh, that. oh sure so twitter we're at the violence pro that's for the violence project and then i have a website which is www.jamesdensley.com okay. and then the violence project is www.theviolenceproject.org
0: perfect all right well thank you again for your time and for chatting with us
2: my pleasure thank you thank you
0: the Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share The Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.